The scripture I read came from 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, and I read the 8th through the 15th verses. But for the purposes of this message, I would like to lift up the 14th and the 15th verses, which reads again. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him. In other words, pull away from him so that he will be all by himself struck down dead. This text is an excerpt that demonstrates the high moral quality of character of a man named Uriah and the depth of depravity of another man's character, namely King David. This is a story of abuse and devastating loss. Yet in the midst of the sordid and depressing details, I hope to show you God's mercy and redeeming love despite all odds. So for this morning's message, I will be speaking a message titled, Too Good for Your Own Good. Let us pray. Father, we've come now to the preaching hour. We invite now your Holy Spirit to be with us and to guide us, to lead us, to instruct us. No one, Lord, came to hear me. They came to hear you. So, Lord, hide my imperfections and credit that only to me. And let it be that whatever word your people get, Lord, from what I have to say, be exactly what you need them to hear. Speak, Lord, for your children are listening. This we pray in your holy name. Amen. In our story, David had finally ascended to the throne after waging a long, arduous, tiresome battle with the former king, Saul. David had gotten now to the point where he now could take things a bit easier. The battle has been difficult, and even though he had been anointed as a young man to be king, his ascension to the throne was anything but easy. By way of setting the right context, let's go back to the beginning of this story in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, and I want to read from the first verse. Here's what it says. In the spring, at the time when kings normally go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and all of Israel's army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David, the king, who normally would go out during the springtime at war, chose to remain in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman, the text tells us, was very beautiful. And David then sent someone to find out and to inquire about her. The man came back and said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers, messengers, to go get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, as the scripture reads. Then she went back 
home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. The first thing that we notice is that David had sent men out to war and the text tells us that they went out at a time where kings normally would go out to war, but David's decision to remain in Jerusalem in springtime is actually telling us something about the state that this king was in. Here's what I mean. This is important information from the perspective that you and I all know, we all know from nature and from what we see, that springtime is usually a time where, where animals and, and nature has a way of getting ready for procreation. So David, we can assume, is at the time of his life experiencing some level of virility. Now from this rooftop, he sees a beautiful woman that he does not know taking a bath. Now let me say this. Over the centuries, people have painted this woman as a sexually immoral person. They often paint her in the way of saying that she bewitched and she tricked a divinely chosen king seductively with her charm and her good looks. She, she's been accused of deliberately bathing in a place where she knew that she could be seen by the king. And since the Bible records for us that David was a man after God's own heart and he is God's chosen one, it is hard to imagine that he could sin unless some tantalizing temptress made him do it. David is therefore often portrayed in media as a helpless victim in the sight of a conniving vixen determined to seduce him. And I'm painting a picture. In fact, there was a 1951 movie that I saw several, many years ago called David and Bathsheba. You might remember the, the movie. It starred Gregory Peck as David and Susan Hayward as Bathsheba. And why I'm bringing this up is because there is a scene in the movie where David is having a conversation with Bathsheba. And here's how the conversation goes in the movie to make my point. Here's what Bathsheba says. Perhaps you would prefer truth to modesty, sire. Before you went away, I used to watch you every evening as you walked on your terrace, always at the same hour, always alone. Today I heard you had returned. And then David says, and you knew that I, and she stops him and says, would be on your terrace tonight? Yes, I knew. I had heard that the king never found a woman to please him. I dared hoped that I might be that woman. David says, why are you telling me this now? Why not before? Bathsheba responds, because first I had to know what was in your heart. If the law of Moses is to be broken, David, let us break it in full understanding of what we want from each other. Talk about taking serious liberties and poetic license with the text. Bathsheba not only oogled David, but she admitted to also being his stalker. And so what I want you to understand, my brothers and my sisters, is that sometimes, and when we think about our culture, we have a way of making it seem that what the Bible is telling us is not really what's going on. But especially in a culture that is run by men, we have a way of making it seem that we're not the ones at fault, but must be the woman. But here's what the text actually says. 
The Bible says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In other words, David said someone to find out about her, meaning he did not know her. The second thing we see is that her name is Bathsheba. And the reason why this is important, church, is because typically in the Bible, women are not named. Usually you'll hear they talk about the, the, she was some woman or a woman or a certain woman. But this one in particular, she had a name. The third thing we see is that she is the daughter of Eliam. In other words, she has a father, and therefore she was not some destitute or common person. She belonged to the house of Eliam. She was a person who had standing in the community and had to have respect. And finally, finally, she is she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She is a married woman. So what we see here, four very good reasons why David should have left her alone. He did not know her. She was somebody. She was someone's daughter, and she was married. And what you need to know is that from roof, rooftops are normally women's domain. It is a place where they do laundry and they bathe. It's their private space in a community that is all run by men. And men are not allowed to look down on a neighbor's roof. So David had invaded this woman's privacy, but David was king. David was king, which means as king, I can do anything I want to do. As king, I can build a wall if I want to. As king, I can send federal troops into cities because I want to. I am king. As king, I can do whatever I want. I can have the all full weight of the United States government to, to, to work at my resorts. As king, I can do anything I want. The text does not let us know if this was by chance that David was on the roof that day. But the point, my brothers and sisters, is it does not matter. The fact is David looked at her and his look led to desire. His desire led to intent. His intent led to pursuit and his pursuit led to deed. David violated his covenant responsibility as the God-ordained king of the nation and went against his oath that he took on his inauguration day to serve and to protect. Bathsheba being described as Uriah's wife, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, meant that she was off limits to everyone, including the king. But the text continues to tell us that David sent messengers to get her, she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Here again, we see some very interesting facts from the text. Number one, David sent messengers, plural, to get her. So it gives the appearance that this was official king business. 
that they were coming on. Secondly, David raped her. Oh, yes, he did. It may not have been violent or a physical struggle, but it was nevertheless against her will. And I will prove that to you quite shortly. I also want you to see that David, he really violated everything about this woman. Third, the text tells us she had been purifying herself. Her menstrual cycle was over. This proves to the timeliness and lets us know that she was, in fact, not capable of conception, but it establishes David's paternity of the child. Finally, she went back home, the text tells us. Now, any form of abuse, especially sexual, is inherently shaming. Bathsheba had been violated by the king, and she's probably very confused, victimized, afraid, and absolutely, extremely ashamed. My brothers and my sisters, bad people do very bad things. But what's even more dangerous, perhaps, is when people with questionable character are given tremendous power and then left to their own, on their own, to operate in the dark without any accountability. These people can and very often will do very bad things. Power must be controlled. Power must be checked. And most of all, power must be held to account. And we will have this wonderful opportunity come November 3rd. Bathsheba had done nothing wrong. She is simply being beautiful and vulnerable and had done nothing for which she should bear any guilt. It is sin that brings death and that sin is David's. Now let's turn to the focus of my message today. Uriah. I want to talk about Uriah. David had no intentions of making Bathsheba his wife. Otherwise, he would not have gone to such great lengths to try and conceal and to hide his sin. And let me be clear, my brothers and sisters, whenever you find yourself in a place where you're trying to hide your deeds, you already know it is wrong. That's why you are hiding it. You already know that you have transgressed even even your own sense of right and wrong. But David decided to call Uriah the Hittite from fighting a war. He decided to call Uriah the Hittite all the way from Afghanistan. And he called him on the pretense of trying to find out what's going on with the Taliban. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to contextualize the message for you. He brings Uriah home to say, Uriah, what's going on on the front lines of the war? And also to give this battle-worn soldier an opportunity for rest to go home to be with his wife out of the goodness of David's heart. Well, the truth of the matter is, David then says to Uriah, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And I, of course, I believe washing your feet is a euphemism for go home and make love to your wife. This is what David's plotting in an effort to hide and to conceal the true paternity of the child that Bathsheba carries. But David says, but Uriah left the palace with a gift from the king. Not only is David saying, go home to your wife, David is also giving him gifts to go. But watch this. David was told that Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of David's servants and did not go to his house. Uriah decided to stay 
with all of the servants and not go home to his house. David hears about this, and David is now incensed, and he wants to know, Uriah, why did you not go down to your house? I told you to go to your house. I gave you gifts. You need to go home. Your wife, she misses you so much. You need to be with her. And Uriah says to David, the ark of the covenant of God and all of Israel and Judah are staying right now in tents in Afghanistan. They are on the front lines of the war with my commander, Joab, and they are in open country. They are free game to the enemy of your people. They are on the front line, and you're asking me to go home and to be in peace when my heart is with the people of the Lord who are battling on the front line. David, as long as I live, I cannot do such a thing. David then decides to say, okay, well, I need you, Uriah, to stay tonight and also tomorrow because now David is plotting even more. The text tells us that David then gets Uriah drunk, thinking that a man in a drunken state would go home to his wife. But Uriah did the very same thing, stumbled towards where David's servants were, and he slept that night. The sad part in the text, the text tells us, David then says, okay, take this letter to Joab, who's on the front line. And that letter that Uriah carried had instructions for the general Joab to put Uriah on the front line in the fiercest part of the battle, right in the open country, in the middle, and to pull away from him so that he would have no protection and that all of the armies and the enemies of God would now rain down on Uriah and that Uriah would die. Here again, David uses his royal power to destroy another one of his subjects. Uriah unknowingly carried this message that led to his very own death. As a reward for Uriah's character, his integrity, and his commitment, he was now given the privilege to die for his Lord. To suffer. This man, and oh, by the way, the text tells us he's Uriah the Hittite, which means he was a Gentile. He was someone who is not one of the original chosen people of God, but he was grafted in. In other words, Uriah is the church of God. We who have been bastardized in many ways, the very thing that God has called us to do, we are now being asked to suffer and to die for. We are now being placed in the midst of the fiercest part of the battle. Brothers and sisters, that's the church. That's you and I. We refuse to take all of the wonders of this world. We refuse to eat at the king's table, to go home and to lie in our own pleasures, choosing, therefore, to serve with honor, to serve with character, to serve with integrity. And this service, my brothers and sisters, led Uriah to his death. In other words, Uriah, hear me clearly, was too good for his own good. Uriah was too good for his own good. But no good deed goes unpunished. The evil deed was all David's. And he would not get away with it if God had anything to say about it. Now, you all know the story. God eventually sent Nathan the prophet to come and expose David's wickedness. 
Bathsheba had lamented over the loss of her husband, and God heard her cry. And so when God sends Nathan to King David, Nathan said, you are the one that is guilty of this evil. Nathan spoke truth to power, which is what we as a church are called to do today. We can't flinch. And let me tell you something. True, hear me, church, true prophets do not engage in cover-ups. True prophets of God do not lean to their own understanding, blindly following a misguided, unruly, bad, let me say bad, administration to our own demise. Following instead what the world says than what God has to say. And I'm telling you right now, if you can't see the writing on the wall, if you cannot be a part of this move of God that is calling out a people to be different, to be salt of the earth, then my brothers and my sisters, you might as well be carrying the letter for Uriah yourself. Because what you are doing is as a prophet of God, you are co-signing the foolishness that's coming out of this administration. And I am saying it. And as a prophet of God, as a man that God has placed into this pulpit, I am telling you that the day of reckoning is coming because no good deed goes unpunished. And for every person, for every one of those over 150,000 people that has died through this coronavirus pandemic, Blood is on the hand of this president and its administration. I am serious. God is not asleep. And the church, the church is standing on the front line declaring that we cannot be bought. We cannot be bought. No matter how drunk you make us, we still will sleep with the master's servants at the door. If God did not forget Uriah, God will not forget you. And this is why this story is recorded in the Bible. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I turn now to the real message and the story. Found in the book of Matthew, the first chapter and the sixth verse. Here's what it says. This is talking about the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to the sixth, the sixth verse in the first chapter of Matthew. And this is what it said. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. God did not forget Uriah in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. God could have said David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. But God decided to say, no, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah has a name, and his sacrifice meant that forever and through all eternity, as long as we look at the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Uriah's name would be there in the headlights. His sacrifice, his honor, and his character meant that God saw, and the same way that God saw Uriah is the same way that God sees you and me. For all of us who will stand on our integrity, for all of us, despite what we see going on in the world for all of us who will still say the Lord is God and him alone shall we serve for all of us who will not compromise our faith in the living God for all of us who will still believe that truth and righteousness still has a place in our society for all of us who will say that God is still holy God has not forgotten you you may not have transgressed as grievously as David did. But we've all done something for which we are not 
proud of and for which we are ashamed. But I want you to understand, my brothers and sisters, that some of you may be, if not many of you, just like Uriah. We, we, we have not done anything wrong in so much in the sight of God. We have not done anything as grievous. But we have done things, and God has forgiven us. God has opened up his heart to say, listen, you are fallen. But your heart is in the right place. And God will never reject a contrite heart. Someone who's willing to say, I stand for the Lord. Despite my own transgressions, I stand for the Lord. And for that person, God will not reject. So, like Uriah, you too may be too good for your own good. But you're good enough for God. You may be too good for your own good, thinking that you've got all things right and still falling in the mess. But as long as you keep your heart stayed on the Lord, you, my brothers and my sisters, will find that you may be too good for your own good, but you're good enough for God. It is this same thought that led our Savior to the cross. Jesus Christ did nothing wrong. He was not guilty of anything wrong. But he came from heaven and he walked with a message, a letter that led to his own demise on Calvary's tree. Hung on a cross, bled and died for sinners just like you and me. And when he died on that tree and he rose again from the grave, the Bible tells us that for all of us who believe, who would yet believe, our names will be written in the Lamb's book of life. So we could say, Lord God Almighty, despite what we have done and despite what others may have done to us, as long as we come to you with saving faith, the truth of the matter is we could take Uriah's name, put a comma, and add each and every one of our names as well. The whole point of my story is that even when you are doing good things, even when you are doing honorable things, there are those in authority that still will plot your and my demise. But do not let that discourage you and do not let that worry you. For while we may end up paying the ultimate price like Uriah did, the truth of the matter is the only thing that matters is what God sees. That's the whole point of the message. It's only what God says about you. And be rejoiced that your names will be written in the Lamb's book of life. Grief and loss carried in secret are really too hard and too heavy for us to bear. But we need others to bear with us when we cry. And that is why we are the body of Christ. Christ bore the burden of your sins and mine. And he bids you today to come unto him, all who are weary and heavy laden. And he, he will give you rest. I pray that this message has made you see that while you are good <laughs> and you're too good for your own good, you're good enough for God, despite what others may plot against you. So keep the faith. Stay the course. Don't look to the left nor to the right, but do know that God will see you through. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.